0: So welcome to another episode of the Unknown Warrior podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. We're joined again by Mark Scott. There's always been conjecture about after the four bodies were chosen uh, and then General Wyatt chose one of those bodies to be the Unknown Warrior, what happened to the other three? And that's kind of what we're delving into today.
1: That's right, yeah. So Wyatt famously says in his 1939 letter that the bodies that weren't chosen as part of the Unknown Warrior selection process were buried at the military cemetery at St. Paul the physical evidence of that doesn't back that up does it Mark?
2: No I have had a look at the cemetery of St Paul and I initially thought oh that's an easy one you know we go to the cemetery and we'll see three unknown graves but that is not what you see when you're there. This point was brought into doubt sometime later actually in 1980 by then Major General Sir Cecil Miller-Smith um, he had been a lieutenant at the time and we'll talk later about a specific role that, that he would have had then. But what happened in 1980 was that uh, a letter responding to one that appeared in the press by the Reverend Collins of Westminster Abbey, he makes reference to this. He, he states that the Reverend Collins perpetuated a mistake that originated from the 1939 Wyatt account. He, he states in his letter, and I'll quote, Presumably it was thought that the sudden appearance of three British soldier graves in Sam Paul's or military cemetery might appear a little odd, particularly as that cemetery having been filled from a military hospital had no other unknown graves. So there are a number of points from from that initial paragraph in the letter. Uh, The first one is that he is stating that the three bodies were not buried at St Paul's Sir And the other thing that's important to bear in mind is that In the minds of the authorities, this sudden appearance of three unknown graves overnight, if you like, was a problem for them. It was in their mind. So he goes on to write to Reverend Collins and he states then the plan as related below was therefore brought into effect. So he he describes this part of the operation and I'll quote again. reconnaissance was carried out personally by Lieutenant Colonel and he he doesn't mention a name at that point, of the Graves Registration Service and Major Williams of that service in an area some distance northwest along the albert Palm Road, which was known to be under active search. You'll appreciate that the search for bodies was going on continuously along a settled plan. The idea was that the bodies should be deposited under earth cover in the area where they would be found by the searchers and reinterred as unknown British soldiers. I was detailed to draw an ambulance car from workshops. I truly did so, making sure that a vehicle, a Daimler, which I had assumed had been recently overhauled, was complete with oil, petrol, water, spur wheel, toolkit, and so on. So he describes this reconnaissance and this, this, this spot, if you like, was identified along the Alberta to Palm Road. He further states then that at midnight, 7th, 8th November, I took the vehicle to the hut where the three bodies then lay. You will appreciate that by November 1920, the majority of the bodies of soldiers buried were little more than skeletons, with perhaps a few rags of clothing. This applied particularly to unknown bodies, many of which had probably been blown to pieces in the first instance, and none of which, including the unknown warrior and his companions, would be more than a bag, a sandbag, full of the approximate bones, including a skull, to make up a complete body. As we were not going to dispose of the temporary coffins in which they had been brought in from the areas, we had little substance to carry. So again, he gives us an insight into um, exactly what the body's composed of, really, um, which was little more than bones. But he mentions this 7th, 8th of November, and the, the date has given us problems, if you like, when we begin the timeline. the operation on the 7th it doesn't add up um, with events leading to the 11th
1: as we spoke about before in the previous episode about about bringing the general wyatt the evidence that we've got suggests very strongly that actually the date that the unknown warrior was chosen was the night of the 8th into the 9th yeah you're, you're right those dates that's mentioned there initially by smith are the old date that was mentioned in the 1939 wyatt letter and not what we believe now to be the true date
2: yeah And he goes on, I'll continue with the account, I quote, The crew of our vehicle, an ambulance had been selected as appropriate, but an ordinary touring car would have sufficed. consisted of second-class chaplain to the forces, the Reverend George Standing, Major Williams, and myself, at that time, Lieutenant C.M. Smith, MC, Royal Army Service Corps, assembled at the church. As driver, I took no part in handling the bodies, but these were placed in the back of the vehicle on one side, the three live passengers occupying the other side. No one volunteered to ride in front with me. It was a bright frosty moonlit night. An ambulance in those days had no windscreen and no door to the driver's seat. It had a canvas apron and two canvas sheets where one would now find doors. Very drafty indeed. Off we went. It was shortly after midnight and it was mentioned that all being well we would reach our destination at about 4am but all did not go entirely well. I stopped once to run up and down the road to get warm. My living passengers were all right. They had blankets and they had a flask of rum. They sang hymns. Well, not always hymns. Then there began an ominous popping in the carburetor. It got worse. It could only be one thing, water in the petrol. Not an unusual happening as stocks of army petrol were used up. There was only one cure. Take off the top of the carburetor float chamber. Remove the float. Mop up the petrol water mixture with a rag having turned off the petrol and turning the petrol on again in the hope that there would be no more water. I had a flash lamp and the necessary tools, but I found that in this engine, the float chamber was under the inlet manifold and a nut had to be slackened. So he goes into this whole detail about how he gained access um, to the, the float chamber of the carburetor. And he continues, I quote, so on we had to go at a much reduced speed and sounding like a machine gun. We reached our destination about two hours late. I parked the ambulance at the side of the road. The bodies were taken to the previously decided location and dropped into the hollow. Less sandbags, of course. Shovels were used to cover them and the Padre said a short prayer. This had had to be because I had spotted searchers coming over the horizon. They started work early. They were spread out and I was reminded of an enemy attack on our trenches. We sped off down the road to Albert. What the searchers who must have heard us and probably saw us made of the party of four men and an ambulance at six or seven o'clock in the morning, I can't think. However, scrutiny of the records of search in this particular area subsequently showed that three unknown bodies were recorded as recovered from a map reference at which we had deposited them. So again there are a number of points there that would maybe raise a question. Searchers being out in that area at 6 or 7 a.m. on a November morning. Personally, I think that would be strange because there would be no daylight and searching for bodies in the dark across an old battlefield would obviously be a very difficult thing to do.
1: And also, if you think about it as well, they're worried about three bodies, unknown bodies, burials, turning up in a cemetery. If you've got three guys dropping bodies off from an ambulance early in the morning, the day of which the Unknown Warrior has been chosen, you've got the same issue, I think, really there, that it's just a strange situation.
2: It is strange. We read these words as black words on a white page, but I think you have to put yourself there. You know, you have to actually appreciate what he is saying here. Some of it doesn't add up. Some of it sounds a bit strange. The other point that I would like to make, that he says that scrutiny of the records of search in this particular area subsequently showed that three unknown bodies were recorded as recovered from the map reference, which we had deposited them. He doesn't actually state that he carried out that scrutiny. He just states that scrutiny took place. So again, you know, his account changes really there at that point and I think that's important as well.
1: This letter is important because it played into an idea that the bodies that weren't selected as the unknown warrior were were just left unceremoniously uh, at the side of the road. That's not what Cecil Smith is suggesting in his letter at all, but it's what people have taken from this to believe, isn't it? That the bodies were just left in a shell hole by the side of the road. The guys drive off and then they're picked up.
2: I, I think that the essence of what we have discovered in that is that each person who we have identified as being involved only appears to know their little piece of the operation. And I would argue that Cecil Smith's perception of what took place ended at that point, and he actually may not have known what happened beyond then. And when we, we read that, and we also read in this, the account he gives of the, the people approaching these searchers, that may then fit into what we're, I think, about to discuss shortly.
1: Through your research into the photographs that are in the Fitzsimons archive, you came across a photo of four people, didn't you? That included Fitzsimons himself, Cecil Miller-Smith, the Reverend George Standing and Major Henry Williams. Initially, you thought that was a group of four officers stood together, but further investigation into that suggested that it could be something more than that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when you, when you do look at the, the photograph and you uh, put it in context with the account that we've just heard um, and also you look closely at the photograph you can see that that Simon is wearing normal trousers the other three are wearing either boots or boots and putties as if they have been in the field as such working and Fitzsimon perhaps was working in a, a different role you know it, it, there is a difference in the way the men are dressed is what i'm saying. This harps back then to another account that Smith had written to a lady who lived in Boulogne, a lady called Jeanine Watron. She had written a book in 1985 on British cemeteries in the Boulogne-sur-Mer area of France. In her section of the book dedicated to St Paul Cemetery, she included a copy of that photograph. And she mentioned that the cemetery had been used for the selection of the unknown warrior. This photograph appeared in her book and it also an identical image appeared in the Fitzsimon collection. So this struck me and I decided to try and, if I could contact Jeanine Watron to find out where she got it from. Uh, was it from one of the four men in the photograph? Was it from Fitzsimon, for instance? And if it was, what else came from that contact? So luckily I was able to track her down and she corresponded with me by email. She was 93 years of age. She told me that she, in order to find out information about St Paul, she had written to Major General Sir Cecil Miller-Smith, as he was then, and he had replied to her. He had sent her two letters, and in one of the letters was this photograph, the, the photograph that she had used and then published in her book. And the letters give a similar They tell a similar story to what we've just heard about the ambulance journey through the night. So we can see now where where this photograph came from, but the one thing that he does state, he he mentions the names. He points out himself in the photograph and he mentions the Reverend Standing and Major Williams. But then he states that the Major on the right, Ernest Fitzsimon, was not in the vehicle. So he specifically takes him out of the vehicle. That then fits with information that I'd I'd already formulated really from accounts given to me by Ernest Fitzsimons' son, way back at the the start of my looking into this, if you like. And in a CV that was written on the 1st of June 1942, Ernest Fitzsimon wrote, and I'll quote, submitted and carried out the scheme for the selection of and removal of the remains of the unknown warrior from the field to the destroyer of at Boulogne. So we can see that possibly Fitzsimon was in more of an executive officer role, uh, if you like, and the the other three men had been detailed or instructed by him um, to carry out the work that night with the ambulance.
1: It's fascinating as well that looking into the characters who are in that photograph, George Standing, who's described there, he was assistant principal chaplain to His Majesty's forces. So he was a relatively senior figure within the chaplains that were based there. So it seems right that he would be joined on that mission with them. And
2: and we've not only identified him in that photograph, based on that account and, and based on what we had now put together, we then discovered him in the Sam Paul group photograph, where he can be seen along with Wyatt, uh, Fitzsimon and others. This appears then to be possibly the group photograph, all those who were involved in the operation. Although there are very many of the, the faces there that we haven't yet identified.
1: The photo in particular of, of the four men is truly fascinating because like you say, you, you look at the photograph and you think it's just a photograph of four officers. When actually when the research is carried out and more information is found out, you found that it, it then gains extra significance, which isn't initially obvious when you look at it, which is which is quite powerful really. Yeah,
2: I mean you get it's speculation, but it's it's pretty strong speculation. You know, these three men, plus Fitzsimon, you know, have they just returned from carrying out what was described with the three bodies. Have they returned to St Paul? And uh, they've been met by Fitzsimon? and, you know, has he asked them, well, how did it go, guys? Yep, all went well. Um, okay, over here for a photograph. Unfortunately, we just don't know. But what we do know was that Standing, Smith and Williams, we now know that they performed that role. And we also know that Fitzsimon. What was the executive officer who, if you like, sent them out to do that
1: work? For them to be stood there in that photograph. It could be coincidence or it could be very likely that, as you say, they were in that photograph for a specific reason. Possibly, yeah. The next twist and turn in this story is related to our own research into the Unknown Warrior. Um, We basically were originally researching a documentary on the subject. And as part of that documentary research we decided to look into anything that was specifically related to the unknown warrior story so we started basically just searching across the internet on on various websites one of these was the national archives and we found a reference in there a catalog reference to military papers including letter related to unknown warrior and it said description, military papers, date 1920 held by the Westminster Abbey Library and Muniment Room. So we were down in London and we decided to nip into Westminster Abbey Library. Now if you go in there and you ask for the papers on the unknown warrior the standard is that they give you a huge lever arch file that contains a large amount of information. Articles from newspapers, handwritten accounts specifically the letters from Cecil Miller-Smith, there was a couple of those in there that were included within that folder. But we were also handed this separate little pouch which was related to the National Archive reference and this contained a number of items, one of which was an identity card that belonged to a Captain A.J. Fisher Rifle Brigade and that's Albert John Fisher. Now this identity card matches the type of identity card that we know Ernest Fitzsimon carried as well because we have his original identity card. And inside the pouch was an envelope and the envelope has written on it at the top on His Majesty's Service and written and underlined is the word secret and it says to Captain AJ Fisher commanding GRU 14. We took out the letter that was contained within that envelope and the letter reads as follows. So it's got secret, again, written in the top right-hand corner in pencil. And it says, two, officer commanding, GRU 14, Grave Registration Unit 14. And at the top, Cagnacor BC. It says, number one, please arrange for a party of four French civilians, a clip with shovels for exhumation work, and an ambulance, in brackets, capable of proceeding to St. Pollenbach, to be at the aforesaid cemetery at 1550 hours, November 8th. You will personally see that they are there and hand them over on arrival to Lieutenant Colonel N.G. Tronson, commanding number one district. Having done this, you will return to your camp and stand by in case you are needed. The ambulance driver should be a Frenchman also. Number two, at 2200 hours, the same date, you will again return to the cemetery with the French labour, equipped as before, plus lanterns, and reinter in the cemetery three bodies, graves having been dug in the meantime. For this work, again, you will not be needed but will be required to stand by in your camp the contents of this document will not be communicated to anyone and you will arrange for the civilian labour yourselves i will come to see you on sunday to ensure all plans are satisfactory the date is the 6th of the 11th 1920 it says copy to colonel tronson and it's signed r w w hills major dadb number 1 division Initially, we didn't quite know what to make of this, but we certainly thought it was, it was interesting. There's some other documents in there, which we'll go on to in a minute. We took photocopies of the documents and immediately sent them across to yourself, Mark. And we kind of assumed that, that this was kind of significant because the nature of what's being said in that letter is, is not normal for Graves' recovery and reburial, is it?
2: No, I mean, the, the word macabre which is a word you don't use every day, springs to mind. The first point that, that struck me was the difference between the address on the envelope and the letter itself, the document itself. Um, and if you can imagine how, you know, uh, uh, the order is written and then it's maybe handed to a lower ranking officer to put into the envelope perhaps and then be sent off. So if, if you can Think of that sequence of events. The actual document is written to the OC GRU 14 and it's headed then Cagnicourt Corps BC British Cemetery. So that, that tells me that it was the cemetery that was important to, to the officer that planned this and wrote those orders, not Captain Fisher himself, because his name doesn't appear until it's written on the outside of the envelope. So it, it wasn't the personality fisher that was the, the, the main object of the order, if you like. It was the officer in charge, whoever that may have been, of GRU 14. Once we read into it a bit more, you know, I, I, I believe that that shows that an element of rec- reconnaissance may have been done beforehand to identify a specific cemetery. And then they have sought to find out which captain was in charge of the GRU the grave recovery unit that looked after that cemetery. So that, that's something to bear in mind. The rest of the document, you know, the four French civilians. So it's going outside of the camp, really. It's, it's you know, they're not using Tommies. They're not using the, the ordinary soldiers. It's, they're, they're getting four French civilians. And the ambulance driver should be a French man also. You know, if you think of that, again, if, if you put yourself in that position today... You know, you're working in a military camp in France and, you know, you have, to, you have to get this ambulance and let one of the locals drive it. You know, a, a military vehicle, in effect. Um, it's all very strange, completely out of the ordinary. And I think that the object of that, using the French civilians, is to stop any chat, stop any loose talk around the camp or between camps of what was going on that night.
1: And again, the second part at 10 o'clock at night, you will return to the cemetery with the French labor and lanterns and reinter in the cemetery, specifically three bodies. It says graves are being dug in the meantime. Again, it's, it's the type of work that's being done here is meticulous exhumation and reburial work. It's not being done at night using lamplight. it's important to stress that, that everything about these orders is, is unusual. And not normal.
2: You know, again, we, we read them as words on a page, and you go, oh, that's interesting. But if you, you actually think of, you know, how out of the ordinary this would have been, yeah, it's uh, completely out of the ordinary.
1: And this led yourself to carry out a significant amount of research into Cagnicourt Cemetery.
2: Yes, I did. I, I looked at what Commonwealth War Grave material is available online, and I was able to basically trawl the cemetery records for concentration documents. By that I I mean uh, documents that were recorded when a body was removed from perhaps a part of the battlefield or a a smaller cemetery, and then they were taken to these concentration cemeteries set up typically after the armistice. and uh, These cemeteries really were used for reburials so you would have found a document that perhaps would give the grid reference of where the body originally came from, the plot number of where it was interred within the cemetery and also any identification that was available for for the body. Some obviously were named, you know, they were they were identified bodies, but many weren't and uh, they would have simply have been buried with an unknown cross and then subsequently headstone. So they, these documents are available and um, as you have the to look at the documentation for the whole cemetery and created an analysis of what was going on. And I could see that there was a pattern of burial. And from the road, if you like, as you look into the cemetery, it was as you would write. It was basically top to bottom, left to right. And the plots were numbered along that pattern. I tried to find what was going on in and around burials that took place at the relevant date here, if you like. So we're talking about the 9th of November 1920, and I found a record of Captain Fisher working in that cemetery, supervising two reburials on the 10th of November 1920. So bear in mind this would have been the next working day. if, if, If we take it that he was carrying out the work on this order, he'd have been working through the night, so his next working day would have been on the 10th. So we have him there in the cemetery carrying out two burials on the 10th, but he doesn't carry out those two burials on the left boundary. The the next available space, if you like, to follow the pattern would have been the left boundary at the edge of plot two, and he doesn't bury the bodies there. He comes in considerable distance and buries them isolated, in effect, in a particular area. The documentation that he provides for those reburials is subsequently altered, and six other graves are placed there by another GRU officer called Leach later on in the month. And they, they are buried taking up the space from the boundary to where Captain Fisher was was working. So we, we have him in the cemetery, if you like, on a relevant date in context of the, the secret orders that were issued on the 6th
1: of November. So the other twist to this story actually was we originally tried to set up a, a meeting with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to take some of this information to them. Not all burial records are digitised on the Commonwealth War Graves website so in order for us to be able to put your research into action Mark we needed to go there and speak to them directly and have access to the non-digitised records so that we could try and corroborate what we thought was going on here and when I emailed Commonwealth War Graves they emailed me back a copy of the Black Country Bugle from 2007 and in it was an article written by a Professor Chris J. Hewitt and it had the Fisher letter in the article, and the article was stating exactly what we were supposing, the fact that this document was significant in the Unnamed Warrior story, which I couldn't quite believe. I thought that me and Pete, were the the people who discovered this document, and that we were... You know, we were sort of one of the first people maybe to connect this evidence to the unknown warrior. But clearly that wasn't the case. And that actually this document had been in the public domain previously, but it hadn't been picked up. And that led you, Mark, to tracking down the family of Captain Fisher.
2: Yes, I eventually spoke to Captain Fisher's granddaughter, uh, Sandra Hewitt, the wife of Professor Chris um, yes she confirmed what we had what we had seen what we had read quite the uh, the document and that her her husband fortunately by the time i spoke to sandra he was her late husband because he had tragically passed away some months just before that it was found after the family cleared out the house of captain fisher's son so so albert fisher had passed away his son had lived in the house and he had then passed away and chris and sandra hewitt were clearing out the house and they discovered this this document what you had found at westminster abbey tucked in behind a writing bureau so it hadn't seen the light of day really and hadn't been discussed or spoken of probably since when captain fisher put it into his pocket back in november 1920 so I began to ask Sandra, you know, if, if she could describe her grandfather and she described him to me as a, a meticulous man after the war he had been a pharmaceutical rep. Her memories of him were sitting in a a large armchair in his living room, reading a broadsheet newspaper, and every so often he would stop, put down the newspaper and look up a word in a large dictionary which he kept at the side of his chair. So she painted this sort of this picture of a sort of meticulous, thorough man. Someone who just wouldn't leave something like that alone. You know, he, he wouldn't just read a sentence and forget about it without finding out the exact meaning of a word that he'd come across. I then looked at the paperwork relating to him from the grave registration documents, and one thing jumped out at me that the document relating to the burial on the tenth of November, nineteen twenty, was actually typewritten, and the documents for every other officer who had. Carried out burials in the cemetery were all handwritten. You know, this could say two things. It could back up perhaps Sandra's impression of the man, of her grandfather. Or was this document pre typed and handed to him? Or was it typed by him on his return back to his camp at Douisson after he had carried out the work? So there's there's two or three things there really to think about. The bottom line is we we don't know the reason, but the document is typed, so there's perhaps ultimately one thing that maybe Captain Fisher was unhappy with. If we are saying that these men were buried in this cemetery, well, then from what we know from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and from the examination of the, the burial documents, what we can say is that they were not buried with a cross, uh, nor were their burials recorded. You know that, that is uh, it's a prickly issue. Really, What we can say in relation to Captain Fisher, in amongst the, the records at Westminster Abbey, there's another document dated January the 14th, 1921, just some weeks really uh, after these events. It states to whom it may concern, Captain A.J. Fisher has been employed under the Directorate of Graves Registration and Inquiries as OC Graves Registration Unit since the 16th of March 1919 to date during this period he has had considerable experience in organization of large working parties and particularly in general office routine his reports and correspondence to these headquarters have been exceptionally clear and good and his office system appears to be the result of sound business methods instituted by him so we have confirmation there of his his um, attention to detail he's a very energetic and capable officer and i can thoroughly recommend him the final line of this uh, document, perhaps speaks volumes. It states he is leaving the sub-directorate at his own request, and within about a week of this document, uh, Captain Fisher had left the army.
1: And I think it's important to mention here again the fact that these orders that have secret listed on them should never have been kept. <laughs> they were never designed to have been kept by anybody. They. They were the sort of orders that you read and then burn after reading. You know, these are top secret orders. They're not designed to be kept. And obviously the the majority, the vast majority, almost all of the orders that were issued with regards to the operation no longer exist, which is why a lot of the conjecture and speculation and rumour has abounded because of the fact that there is a vacuum of evidence. There are no orders. There is nothing left. There is nothing specific that we can relate to. So a lot of our thoughts on the operation are based on oral testimony from people who were there or letters such as the Wyatt accounts. There's no official orders really that that tell us what's going on but I think it gives an insight into the the type of man that he was, the fact that he kept these orders.
2: Yeah I mean if again to put yourself in his shoes if you were issued these orders on the 6th of November 1920 totally out of the blue uh, and you're told to go and carry out this work, you know, to get lanterns and French labourers and, and dig three graves and then have this like nighttime rendezvous and bury three bodies. Personally, if it were me, I would be keeping those orders for the simple reason to keep myself right, because I would have thought something is going on here. This isn't right. Um, it, how can it be right? Uh, what has happened? Am I covering up a crime? And am I, am I going to be questioned about it later? And if I have the orders in my pocket, I can produce them and there's what I was told to do. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> um, so I would simply be keeping them to keep myself right. And it may have been the case that that's what he did. But as, as the days passed, you know, from the 6th to the 7th, 8th, you know, particularly then from the 9th and 10th on, you know, we, we have this covert operation that on the 9th of November suddenly becomes overt. Suddenly this, this body, this unknown warrior, is there for all to see, uh, making its way to Boulogne and then to uh, the dockside, HMS Verdun, Dunn and ultimately Westminster Abbey. So we have this covert operation and Jack Fisher would have seen that and he would have had the order in his pocket and he may then have realised, you know, I've been part of something something big here, you know, I've, I've been part of history, he would have seen the end result, the unknown warrior at Westminster Abbey. And maybe also, to put another layer over that, if the three bodies were buried at Cagnicourt Cemetery, they had been buried without crosses. They were buried unmarked. And that would have gone completely against the grain of his work as an officer and the director of the graves registration and inquiries.
1: I think it's tragic the fact that when... Chris Hewitt tried to put the orders in the paper and and put out there this amazing story that they weren't picked up. But we think that there's two reasons for that really, don't we? The fact that it mentions November the 8th within the orders, which previously people believed the date that they were selected was the 7th, 8th. So it was easy to discount these orders as not fitting with the previously known timeline. However, the fact that we've got an updated timeline means that we now feel that they fit into the correct timeline, the 8th, 9th and also the fact that it specifically says re the cemetery three bodies well there's been some speculation for many many years about the number of bodies that were brought to St Paul for Brigadier Wyatt to choose from, people have said there were five and three and six and quite a few numbers have been suggested, we personally believe that Wyatt was correct, he was there, he was the only, one of the only people to go into the hut when the bodies were laid out for him to choose from because it was under armed guard it wasn't the type of hut that anybody could just walk into and the fact that it does specifically state in there reinter three bodies fits then with the testimony of Brigadier General Wyatt the 1935 letter that we already have doesn't it?
2: It does yeah yeah it, it, it fits Um, you know the, the only piece if you like in the story that we don't have is you know d- does the Smith account meet at some point with with this account with Colonel Tronson and Cagnicourt and what happened in between that's what we don't know we have you know Smith's last recollection if you like are, are these men coming across the horizon when he describes them as being like an enemy attack was this Tronson and the French laborers you know we, we don't have a document to say or we, we have no testimony to say exactly what happened in between was Smith observed you know was he being watched And once he had finished his work, then the other guys came in and recovered the bodies again and and took them on to Court here. So this is what we don't know. But when we look at what we do know, we've, if you like, got the beginning and the end of that journey. And we just don't know what happened in the middle.
1: Okay, then. So we've got all of this information that we've just gone through that is fascinating. If we're going to join all the dots together, Mark, what do you believe happened to those three bodies that weren't selected as part of the unknown warrior process at St Paul? I think when
2: we, when we look at all this, there are gaps, obviously, in the story. I do believe because the Fisher document, the Cagnicord document, was an order. We have nothing to say that order wasn't carried out. And based on the fact that Fisher kept it for the reasons that we've discussed, I believe that in all likelihood, it was carried out. And when we match it with everything else that we know, the, the four bodies, um, Smith's account, you know, even though it's not a complete story beginning to end, I think that I suppose the phrase here that we're looking at is maybe on the balance of probabilities, I would tend to believe that the three bodies are buried within the confines of Cagney Court Cemetery, east of Arras in France.
1: And that, I think, is an incredibly significant point because... The soldiers that weren't selected as part of the unknown Warrior process, they served their country both in life and in death. And if they lie at Cagnacourt British Cemetery, they lie in a Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery with their comrades in arms. Yeah, that, that, that's
2: important. There have been recent reports state that they were simply dumped, I think was the word used, at the side of the Albert Bapom Road. I don't accept that British officers would do that. Quite frankly, they would know better. And uh, I think if if the issue of the crosses is collateral, if you like, in, in this, well, it was considered, but I cannot believe that the bodies would simply be left at the side of the road, nor can I believe that they'd have been left at the side of the road to be picked up by chance by a search team. We, we've seen that every other aspect of this operation has been nailed down, and I've no doubt that this part was nailed down as well, and that they, they were buried within the confines of a British cemetery at Cagnacourt, with their comrades.
0: I think what has kind of been poignant for me throughout all this, you know, kind of research journey that we've all kind of bid on, and when we found the Fisher orders in Westminster after, we kind of just went there on a hunch really. We didn't, it was just to be thorough really. We didn't even think, you know, you don't think you're going to find anything quite so revelatory as that. And it's interesting that Fisher obviously just, as we say, kept those secret orders because to cover his own back or just because, you know, you think, well, you never know, maybe I'll, (laughs) there's just an interesting kind of piece of history that we then took up. And then I think it's again poignant to mention Chris Hewitt without him, this probably wouldn't have reached the point where we are now either, I think.
1: No, it's incredibly poignant really to think that. And also I think it's really important to recognise people like Captain Fisher. You know, these are self-effacing people. They're not after glory or recognition. That wasn't Fisher's intention at all. And these orders at least allow us to bring some of these amazing people into the limelight, really and allow us to remark upon their amazing work that they were carrying out regardless of his his work as part of the Unknown Warrior operation. You know, this is quite a gruesome task exhuming and reinterring bodies and making sure that they're buried with dignity and respect and that they lie with their comrades and you try and gather as much information as possible on them in order to be able to identify them if you can and obviously notify the relatives of where these people now lie and he obviously was very skilled at that work as the reference proves and for him to have been part of something like this an an amazing operation to create a symbol to honour all of those people that he wasn't able to identify and people that he served with that he lost during the war I think is, is really poignant it might not answer all of the questions that people want it might not be the golden ticket that answers the story but it at least shines a light and I think that from my point of view and from our point of view I know that our intention was never to discover the body that lies in Westminster Abbey it's purely been to honour those other soldiers and to try and find out where they were buried and to disprove any myths and if anything I think that the research highlights the incredible job that these guys did and the fact that they did such a fantastic job that that's why we don't know who that body is and it should always remain that way.
2: Absolutely I don't think we should be so arrogant as to think that we can unravel this now. You know, it, it was a secret operation. And it was carefully planned and executed. For that reason, to preserve this point of reference, this unknown warrior that represented all of the missing.